Good morning. There we go. Good morning, everyone. Now I'm on. If you're visiting here this morning, welcome. My name's Chad. I'm the pastoral intern here. If you noticed, I didn't get the plaid shirt memo. There was a rule that you had to be wearing a plaid shirt to be up here this morning. I missed that. If you noticed, the whole worship team and Rich, you did the call to worship, all wearing plaid. I guess they forgot to text the intern. Um, I have a few announcements for you guys this morning before we get into the Word. First is, um, if you're willing and able to stay around after service today, we're cleaning up Christmas decorations. That is today, correct? So if you can stay around and help us clean up, that would be appreciated. Uh, Next week, we're going back to two services, 9 a.m. and 10.30. And just want to put something else on your radar in the next few weeks. Aaron's going to be preaching on the state of the crossing. We do this every year, kind of telling us where... We're at where we've been and where we're hoping to go, right, Aaron? So just have that on your radar. Hopefully of this holiday travel will we'll end soon, and you guys will all be able to make it to hear him preach on that. So um, I want to, in light of Beck's sermon last week, I want to welcome you guys and say grace and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I loved Beck's call last week for us to take seriously the way we greet each other, so I mean that seriously. Some of you may think it's weird that I'm up here, not weird that I'm, not, not in the way that that might sound, but in the last couple weeks, some of you have asked, so Chad, when are you preaching again? And I said, oh, I don't know, not for a long time. I'm not on the schedule, probably the end of January, February, March. I don't say that to put your eyes on me. I just say that to say Tyler Dell was scheduled to preach this morning. I've asked him permission to share this with you all as well, but uh, he had to go in an emergency home to Swink, Colorado, wherever that is, tiny little town. Yep, Doug's from there, best friends. Um, Tyler's mom contracted COVID, and it's not looking good. So uh, I say that to say we need to be praying for him and his family. And I'm not just going to say that we should be doing it, but I'm going to stop now, and we'll pray as a congregation for Tyler and his family and pray for our time in the Word. So join me in praying. Heavenly Father, this is a day that you've made we will rejoice and be glad in it. Um, Thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather here in your name with grace and peace in our hearts from you, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we all as the Crossing Church lift up Tyler and his family and especially his mom to you this morning. Lord, you are the great healer, the great physician, and we pray that you would heal his mom. Do not take her yet, Lord but your will be done. And more than that, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through this. We know Tyler's mom knows you, Lord. And as I talked to Tyler this week, he said it's a weird feeling because he knows his mom knows you and loves you. And if you take her home, then awesome. Praise you, Lord. But it would be hard to lose his mom at such a young age and for the family to lose her. So, Lord, we pray for healing for her. As far as our time in the Word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would send out your Word and cause it to do whatever you will. I pray that you would use me, Lord. Uh, I come uh, before your people in weakness and fear and trembling, uh, not claiming to have any wisdom of my own, but relying on you and your Spirit and your Word, that our faith would not rest in the power or wisdom of men or of me, but of who you are of the God that you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Turn our hearts and our eyes to know you more and to love you more today. I pray this in 
Christ's name, who is our King, our Lord, our treasure, and our Savior. Amen. So I hope some of you, most of you, were here last week when Beck preached. If you, if you weren't here, I, I commend that sermon to you. It was a great sermon. Uh, at the beginning, he started by kind of hating on New Year's Eve and this reality that we celebrate, um, that we've gone one more time around the sun. And it was a good word for me. I kind of had to yes and amen what he was saying because I have been guilty of thinking that let's just get 2020 over with. And in 2021, somehow there's this mythical, magical hour from Thursday night to Friday morning that everything's going to change, that COVID's going to be over, that the political turmoil is going to be over, that everything's just going to be better. And obviously that's not the case. So yes and amen, Beck. But I offer another perspective, probably similar to many of you. I appreciate this, this end of the year, this beginning of the new year to, to pause and to reflect on God's grace what he's done in my life, in the life of our church. Our last podcast episode, I got the pastors together, and it was just a reflection. What what do we feel like God has done? What was good? What was hard? I also like it because it helps me and probably many of you articulate our hopes and our dreams and our prayers for next year. Some of you may call this resolutions, and I know, like Beck said, some of us fizzle out on these resolutions. But I am hoping, honestly, that the Lord would use me this morning to, for the first sermon of the new year. Not that I'm setting the tone for the new year, but that's been on my mind. Oh, wow, it's the first sermon of the new year. And I have a simple hope and prayer for myself and for you all this morning and this year. But I think it's one of the most important things we can give our lives to. I hope you guys would join me today in putting a stake in the ground that we would seek to know God. Not just know about but truly know Him and love Him and live our lives for His glory. That is my deep hope and prayer for you guys for this year and the rest of your lives and my life. Before we dive into the text, I want to lay a quick foundation. We could also call it a motivation. I want to motivate you why you should want to know God besides the fact that He's God and He's amazing and He can save and He can satisfy. Many of you who've been around church know this. If you've read your Bible for any amount of time, you know this, but it's a good reminder. And for those of you who are maybe visiting this morning and aren't Christians, it's a good thing for you to know. Human beings were created for the glory of God. We were made by God for God to worship Him, to love Him, to show the world what a great God and King He is. He's so good, and we're created to reflect His goodness in the earth. How can we know How can we glorify God if we don't know Him? God is not a relativist. There are true and untrue things about God. We have to know Him to glorify Him. If we think of it in a horizontal level, I'm not going to use the word glorify, but I'll use the word honor. If I want to honor my wife, I have to know her. If you ask me, well, why do you love Audrey? And I say some vague things like, oh, she's neat. She's cool. It shows I don't really know her that well. Or if I say something untrue, like, oh, I really like her because she has red hair and she's from Nebraska. Well, neither of those things are true. That doesn't honor my wife. How can I tell you about the new pizza restaurant in town if I haven't been there and tasted and seen that the pizza is good? If I don't know about the crust and the ingredients? I have to know truly about it intimately. It has to have been in my mouth for me to tell you. You've got to go there. You've got to try it. 
I'm convinced that the health of our church is dependent on how well we know and our pastors know God, truly know God. I'm convinced that the strength of our individual faith is dependent on how well we know God. I'm convinced that the reason Christianity in America is seen as an ignorant, blind, and stupid worldview is because there have been so many Christians in our churches that don't know God. It's funny, Beck mentioned this last week, we didn't compare notes, ragging on nominal Christianity. I used to be a nominal Christian, so I feel like I get, I'm allowed to be a little more harsh. I'm not trying to, to make anybody feel bad, but I just know that nominal Christianity has been a huge detriment to Christianity in America. And God is, I hope you guys, I say this not to discourage, but to encourage you guys. Yes, maybe numbers of Christians are shrinking in America, but God is purifying His church. It's as if God has said, will the real Christians stand up? And we are. And, it's, and, and I, my call to nominal Christians, nominal just means in name only, isn't get out of the church, but come in for reals. Don't just come in here to, to check a box and say that you know God, that you're a Christian, but you don't live a life that shows you love Him and know Him. That was me for the first 26 years of my life. I hope God would use me this morning to cause you to say, I want to really know God and not just be lip service. So before we dive into our text, which is Jeremiah 9, you can turn there, Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, I want to give you a quick context. I won't give you a whole synopsis of the first nine chapters, but briefly, Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. The kingdom had divided at this point. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom, and God is using Jeremiah, like he did most of the prophets, to call his people back to him. God is telling Jeremiah, say to the people, you've committed idolatry, you've committed adultery, you've turned from me, you are my chosen people, and you're breaking the covenant. And then a couple times, what really sets us up well for these verses, in chapter 9, if you turn your eyes to verse 3, it says, they, speaking about God's people, they bend their tongue like a bow, falsehood and truth has not grown strong in the land, they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Look at verse 6, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me declares the Lord. God's people had ceased to know Him truly, and He's upset about it, and He's calling them out for it. So if you guys would join me in standing and showing reverence for the Word of God, these are amazing verses. Chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You may be seated. How many of you, is that one of your favorite passages in the whole Bible? Let me see a raise of hands. There's, there's a few. I thought there would be. Isn't that an amazing passage, an amazing text? There can be lots of confusing things throughout the major and minor prophets. I know that. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes in our Bible reading plan, we can be like, ah, man, I'm in the prophets. I don't really understand it. But isn't this good? And 
cut and dried and clear. It's a simple message this morning, but that doesn't mean it's simplistic. Again, I think this is one of the most powerful things that we give our lives to. So first, let's talk about boasting. We all boast in something. Because we were created by God, for God, to worship Him, to glorify Him, all of us is worshipers. All of us are boasters. So we're going to boast in something. We're either going to boast in God, or we're going to boast in the wrong things. What does it mean to boast? Many of us who grew up here in America think of it as only a negative thing. Am I right? We think of boasting, we think, oh, that's bad. We're, we're taught from a young age, don't, don't be a boastful, braggart person. The dictionary defines it as expressing excessive pride in oneself, to praise oneself extravagantly in speech. So if we are boasting like that, it's not a good thing. We don't, we, we've all been around those people who are, who are such boastful braggarts. We can't get away from them fast enough to excessively praise oneself. We don't like it. We're not supposed to boast like that. But boasting is not only a bad thing, as we see here and through the rest of the Bible. We're, we're, called, we're told to boast. There are good things, namely a good thing to boast in, God, and bad things to boast in. Boasting really is tied to our identity. Whatever we boast in is what we find our value and our worth and our purpose in. It's what we run to and we need uh, strength and confidence to face trials and tribulations, which many of us have and will. Therefore, boasting is just an expression of worship. Boasting is not a bad thing. Let's try to redeem that word from American culture. Boasting is a good thing if we're boasting in God. Therefore, what this passage says this morning is, boast in God. Do not boast in the things of this world. They don't save and they don't satisfy. So then we have three warnings here in this text of, of three worldly things not to boast in. First at the beginning of verse 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. I forgot to say at the beginning in the context, God had told Jeremiah to warn the Jews that they were about to be judged by Babylon. Babylon was coming from the north and they were going to they were going to sack Jerusalem and they were going to bring many Jews into exile. Daniel and his friends being four of those people who were taken into exile. Judgment was coming. Maybe the Jews are thinking that their wisdom can save them from this impending judgment. Maybe they can outthink God or outthink the Babylonians, and therefore they're boasting in their wisdom that they're going to be okay. We see this today still. The wisdom of man has eclipsed the wisdom of God or God. I think of you know, the militant atheists who, who, whose ministry, they don't have a ministry, who, whose lives are about arguing that, that faith in God is stupid. You think of someone like Richard Dawkins. If you've seen uh, one interview or uh, one debate with him, he just has such vitriol. Like his, his wisdom, he is so wise. He says, we don't need God to explain life anymore. It, it's stupid and blind to believe in God and he boasts in his wisdom. There are others, not just well-known people like that. Maybe people in here who have really high advanced degrees and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to touch on that again at the end of this section. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we boast in it, like we see in America... That's not going to save and that's not going to satisfy. We should not. We cannot boast in our wisdom. Next he says, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Maybe the Jews are thinking, 
well, we're a mighty people. We're God's people. We have might. The Babylonians won't come. They won't win. We have military might or political might or Jerusalem is a big, fortified, walled city. We're going to be okay. We see this today. We can boast in our might, in our own personal might, our strength, our grit to get through any circumstance. We can boast in the might of America, a great and powerful country, or our political party. I picture any, anything that we boast in as far as might, I think of the kingdoms of this world and political parties as a bouquet of white dandelions in the hand of God. And if at any moment he wants to blow and they all just disappear into the air, we should not boast in our might because it won't save and it won't satisfy. Regarding the wisdom and might of men, I have to use this cross-reference. I want to read to you so many more verses, but I don't want to distract us from the main point. You can turn if you want with me, but you can just listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 25. 20 through 25. Listen to this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. Now listen, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you go on, the following verses really make it seem like Paul had Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 in his mind as he wrote these verses. Aren't those good? The the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Therefore, we should not boast in our wisdom or our might. Finally, maybe we're thinking, maybe the Jews are thinking, well, I've never claimed to be super wise or super smart or super strong, but I have a lot of money. Maybe the Jews are thinking they can bribe God. Maybe right when the Babylonians are right there at the gates, they can just bring a bunch of money to the temple. They can just keep gaining money, bring it to the temple, and God will relent. Or maybe instead of giving it to God, they can give it to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians will repent. It's not the case. Their riches won't save, and they won't satisfy. Do we see this today in our culture? I I, thank you for the laugh. I don't think I need to preach anymore on Do we see people boasting in their riches? Do even we as Christians sometimes, amidst a coronavirus pandemic, have we boasted in the strength of our savings account to get us through this time more than we've boasted in God? Riches won't save and they won't satisfy. So I ask you guys to view yourselves in the mirror of God's Word. If there are any unchristian unbelievers in here, non-Christians, and for you believers. Does any of this apply to you? Have you seen this in your own heart over the last nine, ten months? Are you boasting in wisdom, might, or riches? We can't outthink, overpower, or bribe God, and we shouldn't try to, and we shouldn't want to. Boasting in those things, again, they won't save, and they won't satisfy, but God But God tells us what will. 
verse 24, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. There's a big difference. I think there's a, there's a, the word understand there is put there on purpose, obviously, inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a big difference between understanding and knowing and knowing about. We can know a lot about Michael Jordan, especially if you've seen the Last Dance documentary, but we don't know Michael Jordan like his wife and his kids and his mom does. Knowing about something implies head knowledge only. Understanding and knowing replies intimacy, relational intimacy, experience. I'm not trying to, to be, you know, scare everyone with charismania, but we really do experience the love of God. It is something we have to experience. Think about an aspiring astronaut studying to go to outer space, someone who's actually in the NASA program. They know a lot about outer space. They know a lot about what the the earth looks like from outer space, maybe from pictures, but they don't really know it until they've experienced it and they understand and know it. Before the anti-gravity simulators, they can know a lot about weightlessness, but they don't know it. They haven't experienced it till they're up there and they're in it. I think of still being kind of new parents, Audrey and I, we've been parents for almost four years now, and we, you guys could tell us, you know, you parents in here, you could tell us a lot about being parents. We knew a lot about it. We read books, we read Baby Wise, but we didn't know it until we've experienced the joys and the hard, sleepless nights. It's the same with God. We can know a lot about how God comforts the brokenhearted. But we don't know it until He draws us out of a deep and dark pit. Or maybe He doesn't draw us out right away, but we experience that He is with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We can know a lot about that God gives peace, but we don't know it until He gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. May we pray that for Tyler Dell and his family, and for Kurt and Jill Bear. We can know a lot about God's great love, that He is holy, 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 and loving, and He created us for His glory, and yet we have a sickness called sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world that has separated us from God, from the true knowledge of God. Each of us is born without knowing God and not loving Him, but that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the perfect life die a death on the cross, and as he was dying, God poured his wrath against sin on Christ for all who would believe. And that if you believe in that, you'll be saved. We can know a lot about that, but we don't know it until you experience your personal sins forgiven. That was the first 26 years of my life. I knew so much about it. I knew all the answers. I grew up in the church. And and one Sunday at 26 years old, I was hearing a sermon similar to this. And I was struck to the heart. I don't know God. My sins have not been forgiven. And I repented and believed that day. And I have found in myself such a desire to know this God, to love Him and glorify Him. And I call you to that today. Those of you Christians and non-Christians, I call you to that today. The point is, there is a big difference between understanding and knowing God and knowing about. And... He doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, know me, good luck. He's given us this whole book that we may know him. 
And specifically in these verses, he's given us more than just know me, good luck. When I was young, my dad would take me fishing. He loves fishing. He's a phenomenal fisherman. I would say my dad could catch a fish in a sewer. That's how good a fisherman my dad is. And when we would go fishing, fly fishing, we would, he would take me to the pond or the lake or the river, and he wouldn't just get there, park, and say, go fishing, good luck. He would put my fly rod together. He'd string the line through. He'd tie the fly on. He'd, he'd remind me how to tie the knot. He'd tell me which flies will probably work. He would teach me. He was a good father. God is a better father than mine is. God doesn't just say, know me, good luck. He says, know me, and if there are three things I really want you to know about me, I want you to know that I'm a God of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Steadfast love is one of the most used words in the whole Bible. It's the Hebrew word hesed. There are songs written about this word. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's a picture of God's never-changing, fixed-in-place, covenant, faithful love. I feel weird, and so I won't say that it's the most important thing that God wants us to know about Him, but I can't say it's not either. It seems like if God wants us to know something that's very important about Him, it's that He is a God of love, of steadfast love. Aaron preached a great sermon a few weeks ago on John 3.16, for God so loved the world. How? That he gave his only son for us, that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. I couldn't help but think of Exodus 34 as a cross-reference for this. Again, when God is telling someone about who he is and what he wants them to know about him, it's Moses. Moses says, please let me see your glory. And God says, you can't see my face because you would explode because I'm too holy, but I'll put you in a cleft of a rock. I'll put my hand over you and I'll walk before you, you can see my back, and I'll declare my name before you. And what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and what? Louder? Abounding in steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, those of you in here who don't know Jesus, do you know this God of steadfast love? He wants us to know that about him and to boast in that. He will keep His hold of us. He will keep true to His covenant with us. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, you will be saved. I've been taking my son Zeke to the pond a lot. We're playing a lot of pond hockey. And I'm helping him learn how to skate. And he's holding my hand and I'm holding his, but his grip isn't firm enough to stay held. And he slips on the ice. And when he slips, his hand would fall out. But my hand has got that kid. He is not going to fall. And that is a picture of God's steadfast love to you and me. Yes, we do hold on to God, but we can lose our grip. When we are faithless, he is faithful. And his grip will hold. The next thing he wants us to know is that he is a God of justice. I think this is one of the big things that the Jews had forgotten, right? Maybe, maybe some of us who think, yes, God is so much love that He's not a God of justice. He won't judge. He's not going to judge sin. God wants us to know He is a God of justice. He will judge sin. Either He will judge your sin on Jesus Christ, or He's going to judge it on you. Eternity in hell. God is the good and perfect judge. He will right every wrong. And His sense of justice far outweighs our sense of justice. 
I wonder if any of you have a a burden, a heart for something in the world, some injustice. Now, many people do. Actually, I think everyone does. All of us were made in the image of God. We could argue about what is just and unjust. We have to go to God's Word to know what is truly just and unjust. But for me, and if you've gotten to know me over this last year being the intern, you know I have a passion for unborn life. I'm on the board of the Alpha Center ministry here in town, and I have a deep passion for unborn babies and that they have a right to life. And every board meeting once a month, I find myself in tears just because we're talking so much about a fight in abortion and how many babies have been lost, um, sacrificed, in my opinion. Um, And it's crazy to think that my sense of justice is nothing compared to God's. I mean, He sees every little thing And he will right every wrong. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to say to any women and men in here, if if you have had an abortion, uh, you cannot outsend the grace of God. It is good news of great joy that God can forgive you for aborting a baby. And he can cause you to, to know him and be forgiven of your sins. And we would love to walk alongside you in that. If you want to talk about that, you can talk to me if you want. You can talk to the pastors. But there is grace in that. I don't want to come down too hard on you. I like to think that, and I can't give you Bible verses to back this up, but if that's been you, I wonder if one of the first people at your welcoming committee in heaven will be that baby. The adult baby. And you, you come into the, to the gates and that child says, Mom, Dad, I love you. I forgive you and the King has forgiven us. Let's go praise Him together. God, praise God that His ability to execute justice is authoritative, powerful, and effectual. What do you say a lot, Matt Whitney? He will, he will make every wrong thing untrue. Yeah, He's going to do that someday. He's a God of justice. Finally, He wants us to know He is a God of righteousness. This is a picture of His perfection, His purity. It's not just that He does righteousness. God is righteous. He's the standard of righteousness. We don't choose what's good and evil, right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous. Only God does. That's His job. We tried to take it when we ate the fruit in the garden. We've been doing it ever since. That's why there's debate about what's righteous and what's unrighteous. But God is the standard. We have to go to Him to find out what is righteous. One commentator says the righteousness of God is His divine holiness, so His holy character applied in moral government in the domain of law. God is pure and right and governs and rules righteously. I heard a really good John Piper sermon one time on this, and and he said the righteousness of God is the fact that God does everything for His own glory. Everything He does is for His own glory, and that's righteous. And when we do say, think, and feel things that are for His glory, we're acting righteously. One commentator says that steadfast love, justice, and righteousness don't stand alone. They go hand in hand. He says God's love motivates His justice and expresses itself in righteousness. God wants us to boast in the fact that He is a God of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And how does it end the verse? It says, For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
we really get to know someone fully and completely by knowing what they delight in, what they take pleasure in. Aaron and I are going through a book right now called The Pleasures of God, a whole book written on what does God love? What does He delight in? Of course, we can get to know God through the things that He doesn't like, through the things that He hates. He says that in the Bible, but it's really full and complete. I think we know someone better when we know what they love, what they delight in. As I've gotten to know you all, and my wife, her too, gotten to know you all for the last couple of years of being here, you'll notice one of the first things I ask is, what do you like? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? What do you enjoy? It's the same with God. We get to know Him by knowing what He delights, and He delights in these things. God is not constrained by something outside of Himself. Some, some people, some Christians believe this, that like there's a law above God that He has to adhere to. That's not the case. God delights in these things because they are a, a reflection of His very character. He loves showing His people steadfast love, being a just God and a righteous God. There's no constraint or compulsion in Him. This call to boast in the Lord is not just here. This isn't an island of verses. This isn't the only place. If it were, it would still be a good call to boast that you understand and know God. But it's all over the Bible, all over the New Testament. Paul talks about this all over his letters. I would remind you of one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. Paul in Philippians 3 is saying, if there's a reason to boast in myself or the things of this world and my religion, and I use that in the, the bad way, then I have reason to boast, Paul says. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But what does he say after that? But whatever gain I had, I count as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. The world would tell us to boast in the things of the world, our own accomplishments. From, for me, from the age of 14 to 26, I bought into the lie that I was only good, I only had worth, I only had value, I could only run to, to track and field as a source of safety and security because of my performance in a sport. And I wasn't the kind of guy that went around and told everyone my track and field resume, but in my heart, that was my identity. That's what I boasted in. And I think there are people here who have bought into that lie. Maybe even some of you Christians. You're putting your identity in anything but God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And you're trying to boast in things that, again, will not save and will not satisfy. And God tells us all over His Word, boast in that you know Me, you understand and know Me. Count everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I end here. First, uh, any of you in here, if you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. And I call you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Repent of your sins, and you will be forgiven. There's only one way to know God, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to heaven. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you put your faith in Jesus this morning, repent of your sins, you will notice in yourself a desire to know God. You will, you will notice a desire to, to be in church and to be in the Word. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come up front. You can just say, Lord, forgive my sins. I want to follow you and I want to know you. For those of you that are Christians in here, I have a quote for you. It's a long quote, but it's so good. I think it sums this up well, and it gives us an application, a great application. It's not a quote from a Puritan, so there's not going to be 20 words in here that you don't know, so bear with me. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God. It's believing God, taking God at His word, living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do what He says, that His speaking is His doing. It, it, it is an abiding assurance in God and His promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to Him. Do you wish to be a more consistently obedient, steadily persevering Christian, a stronger Christian, a more courageous and outspoken Christian? Then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith, and faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all of His promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who He is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing Word of God. Read of Jesus Christ. The same powerful Word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same Word that can bring you to life and furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. End quote. We could argue there could be many applications of knowing God. I'm, I think I'm going to stand on what I think is the most important one. To immerse yourselves in the faith-arousing Word of God. Daniel, recently on Realm this week, asked if people had Bible reading plans that they would be willing to share on Realm. I encourage everyone this year to start a Bible reading plan. You can find one on the internet. You can talk to the pastors. They can give you some advice. One of the things I do, take it or leave it, is I'm always reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because of this quote. That is just a little island for me. I just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, start over. I am always reading about the life, death, and resurrection of my Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know God more, you have to know His Word. If you're, if you're an Orthodox Christian that believes this is His inspired, inerrant 
Word of God. Give yourselves, Crossing Church, brothers and sisters, give yourselves to knowing this God through His Word. Do it alone, yes, but do it together too. Keep coming on Sunday mornings. This is a pillar of our church, seeking to know God more through His Word preached. Join a life group. Get to know God better in community. It's cool all the perspectives you get of of the way people know God and the way we can also experience God through the love of His people. One more thing for those of you who are Christians in here. Maybe you're feeling insecure. This sermon was not meant to make you question your salvation or be a hammer on you. It's supposed to be encouragement. That's one of my main gifts is encouragement. But the Bible does say test yourself. See if you're in the faith graciously and humbly. If I could go back 13 years to when I was 20 and and preach this sermon to myself, I would. I would say, bud, you think you know God, but you don't. You're just giving him lip service. It's not satisfying the things you're giving your life to. You're saying you know God, but you don't. So test yourselves. But on the other side of the coin, if you're feeling insecure, if you're wondering, well, do I really know God? That sounds a lot like the enemy saying, did God really say? He loves to make us feel insecure. Well, have I really put my faith in Jesus? And if you really did, if you you repented of your sins and you have a desire to know God, or if you have a desire to desire to know God, then, then don't let the enemy speak lies into your heart and your mind. God has said, He is a God of steadfast love, and He has said, if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And the enemy wants to get us feeling insecure all the time. I end with this, a wartime boast. One pastor, I borrow this from him, many of you know him, Tim Keller, said, a boast was originally a part of warfare. How would a king or a general or a commander get his army to run into battle with almost certain death looming? He would, he would get in front and he would give a boast. Sorry to use Braveheart again in another sermon. It's just such a good movie. You guys got to see it if you haven't. And if you have, you need to see it again. I need to see it again. And you know the, the final scene. Scotland's going to run away. There's too many English. And William Wallace comes in front on his horse with his blue war paint. And he gives a powerful speech. He says, you can run away and live. And if you fight today, you might die. But I'm willing to bet that you would trade every day from this day to that to come back here and tell them you can take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom. And I get goosebumps every time and they run into battle. And that's a really cool boast, but it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the boast I offer you guys. I finish with this. There's no way. There's no way you can go out these doors, even today, with, with certain death looming over all of us, without knowing God. You cannot get through this life without knowing God. That is what's going to get us through. He saves and He satisfies, and we are called to give our lives to understanding and knowing Him. And that is the boast. That is what we should boast in. Join me in 2021 and for the rest of our lives, and as long as... We are in this church family together to knowing God, treasuring Him together, glorifying Him together. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for what You've done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is because of this that we know You, that we have been restored to right relationship with You. 
We praise you, Lord. We know, God, that you are a God of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. You delight in those things, Lord. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done, Lord. I pray that this would be a year that we come to know you more. Really, really know you more this year. That we would give ourselves to the to the reading of and study of the Scriptures alone and together. That You would show us even more great and glorious things about You, and that You would use us as individuals and us as the Crossing Church to cause more people to know and love You. Pray this in, your, in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.